I am so excited because this morning after what feels to me like a, a, a far too long break, uh, we are going to be back in the Gospel of Luke, continuing on in our study through the book of Luke. That's what we do, right? Uh, we, we go through God's word. And we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse to see what the Lord would, would speak to us. And so we're going to pick up where we left off some months ago um, in Luke chapter 9. And being in Luke chapter 9, that means that, that we are really closer to the end of Jesus's ministry than we are to the beginning of his ministry. We're closer to Jesus going to the cross and we are to that point where he was calling his first disciples. By Luke chapter nine, we find ourselves uh, over two years into Jesus's ministry. So for over two years, he's been traveling throughout Judea and then Galilee, uh, going village to village and, and, and teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing those who are sick and freeing those who have been captive to demons. It was about a year and a half, or less than a year, I'm sorry, of, of Jesus' ministry left. And, and during that remaining time, Jesus continues to go from place to place, but now he seems to be heading in a direction. He seems to be heading for a destination. He's heading for Jerusalem and for the cross. You know, all through his ministry, we've seen Jesus revealing himself to his followers, showing himself to those who would call themselves his disciples. And by this point, these guys really have a, a firm grasp on who it is that, that Jesus has declared to them that he is. He is, as John the Baptist put it, very far back at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He is God's Messiah, the Savior, the one who has come to, to save us all from our sin. You know, I don't think the disciples um, were any firmer on this understanding than they are right at the moment where we pick up. Because we're picking up right after uh, that, that event that we call the transfiguration. Remember how in, in, in Luke chapter 9, there in, in verse 28, it tells us that, that Jesus had called three of his disciples, Peter, uh, James, and John, to, to go with him, to leave the other disciples behind in the valley and to go up upon a mountain. And then Jesus was going to go up there and pray. And it was there while Jesus was praying on the mountain that he was transformed. He was gloriously changed. Radiantly, his majesty just blazed out from within him. You know, quite honestly, I think that the more accurate way to describe what happened up on that mountain wasn't that Jesus was changed, but the reality of who Jesus was, was revealed. That for his disciples in that moment, their eyes were opened. And, and though his glory had been hidden from them, yet for that brief moment, they could see 
They could see the reality that he was God Almighty wearing human flesh. Jesus did not become more glorious when he got up onto the mountain. No, 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 no. Rather, the glory that he carried within him, even down in the valley, was simply revealed to those who were on the mountain with him. <laughs> As always happens, though, far too soon, that moment of clarity had come and it had gone. And it was time for Jesus and his three disciples to hike back down the mountain. And that's where we pick up this morning. That's where we pick up this morning. It's in, in Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 37. So I invite you, grab your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 9, find verse 37, and then I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read our passage, and I, I'd ask that you would follow along. Beginning in verse 37, here's what it says. The next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replies, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we ask that you would teach us from your word, that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would take these things that you have recorded here for us and that you would speak them into our lives, You'd speak them to our hearts. You would help us not only to understand the difficult things, but Lord, to be impacted by what it is that you would say to us. God, may we go out different than we came in because we have heard from you and responded to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know, maybe it's just the pessimist in me, but it seems to me that every time I experience some, some glorious moment of clarity with the Lord, some, some sweet, amazing worship time, a, a powerful weekend retreat, a, a big answer to prayer, every time... Something like that that is so significant takes place. It seems that it's, it's always immediately followed upon by some sort of difficulty. 
some big conflict comes in. Uh, Some frustrating setback takes place again. Some sort of confusion. It just seems like it's always something. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised when that's really what we see happening to the disciples as they come down off of that mountaintop experience with Jesus. Look back at verse 37. It says, the next day, when they came down from the mountain, there was a large crowd that met him. And a man from the crowd cries out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, my only child. So when Jesus and the three disciples, when they come down the mountain and they they go to, to join the other disciples, they are immediately met by a mob. Okay, it doesn't say a mob. Luke actually just says that it was a large crowd, but, but Mark's gospel, in describing the same event, he tells us that when they came to the other disciples there in Mark 9, that they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes disputing with them. Picture the scene. is Jesus, Peter, James, and John, as they rejoin the others, I can just see them as they're, they're coming down that mountain path. No doubt they have been reflecting on the glory that they had all seen and heard and felt. It had all been so real. Everything had been so clear. On that mountain, they had basked in the sight of Jesus glorified. There on the mountain, they saw clearly and they heard clearly. They heard the voice of God, an actual audible voice of God declaring that Jesus was his son. But now, now that memory is quickly dissipating into the din of angry voices and their sense of peace and well-being, it's, it's been shattered by the, the tension and the frustration in the crowd as they approach it. As they re-enter the world of men, suddenly the glow of the mountaintop recedes. Now, it didn't recede. It was consumed. It was devoured by the grit and grime of the reality of life. The noise and chaos of the world filled their ears and their eyes. Confusion replaced peace. Anger usurped worship. There on the mountain, you see, there on the mountain, they'd seen Jesus, and it was obvious. It was obvious that he was sovereign, that he was God in human flesh. He was in control and all was right with the world. But down in the valley... Down in the valley, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion that seemed to reign supreme. Certainly, that was the perspective for at least one in that crowd that met them. His life had been consumed by the uncertainty of what was going to happen with his son, by the frustration of helplessly watching as this evil spirit tormented him day after day. Think about the horror of watching your child, your only child, suffer 
in the way that this young man suffered. Look at verse 39. A spirit seized him and suddenly he shrieks and it, it throws him into convulsions till he foams at the mouth. Severely bruising him, it scarcely ever leaves him. And then the man adds, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. There is, there is no more helpless feeling, is there, than as a parent to see your kid suffering to not be able to fix it, to not be able to stop it. Have your kids ever had the night terrors? Well, that's one of the joys of parenthood they don't tell you about beforehand. You're laying in bed, 2.30, 3 a.m., a blood-curdling scream rings out. You go dashing into the kid's room, and it's worse than what you expected because they won't wake up. You flip on the light, you grab hold of them, and they're just thrashing and they're screaming and they won't stop. And they won't wake up. And, and as a parent, you just feel so helpless because you want it to stop. You want them to be comforted, to be okay. How much worse for this man in the waking hours of the day well, his son was fully conscious to have him torn away and torn apart by a power that he could not come against. That's why he was looking for Jesus. That's why he went looking for Jesus. He had, he had heard that Jesus could help, that Jesus could, could deal with this. He had no other hope. There was no other place to turn. Unfortunately for this man, he did not find Jesus. Instead, he found Jesus' disciples. <laughs> That's always a severe downgrade. <laughs> and as it would turn out, Jesus' disciples found themselves entirely unable to help this man or his son. And then... Again, a detail that only Mark provides for us. The disciples, having found themselves unable to help, distract themselves by beginning to argue with the religious leaders who were there. And so, when Jesus returns on the scene, this man quickly turns away from these unhelpful and argumentative disciples. And he comes to Jesus and he pleads with him. He says, I beg you, look at my son. Consider him. Help him. Rescue him. This man knows that if Jesus will only see his son, that he'll help him. He'll intervene. If Jesus sees what his son is experiencing, this man knows that Jesus will rescue him from it. You know, it's then that this passage takes 
I think what is for us a rather awkward turn. Here is this man who, who at long last finds Jesus, the one who can help him. And when he cries out for help to Jesus, Jesus responds in a way that, well, it's not what we expected. In fact, honestly, it's, feels rather harsh. I think this is one of the harshest things that, that, that Jesus says in all the gospels. Here's this man just desperate to, to get some help for his son. And, and how does Jesus respond? It says, Jesus replied, verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Wow. Okay, Jesus. That's not what we expected you to say but he's not done. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring your son here. I think the hardest thing about this passage is that the written text, it just can't tell us exactly who Jesus is talking to when he says what he says here. I mean, was he responding to this boy's father? Was he looking at him, speaking to him? Oh, was this Jesus's response to this man? Or was he looking off to the side, off to the distance? Was he looking at his disciples? Maybe they're still arguing with the scribes and he's looking at them and he's speaking to them in the midst of this man's request. Or maybe he's looking at the crowd, looking beyond this desperate father. Now, we can't know for sure because it just simply, it doesn't say. But there are a couple of possibilities that I think it will be fruitful for us to look at. Though I think it feels awkward for us to consider this, I think that we should consider that Jesus could have been rebuking this father. He could have been speaking to this father. And we don't know the situation, uh, but maybe, possibly, the situation is that it is the father's fault that the son is in this condition. Uh, could it be that, uh, that this father was the one who had exposed this son to this sort of evil? Maybe he had begun to dabble in the occult and it was because of the things that he had done that his son had become exposed to these things. Maybe, we don't know. Could it be that the son himself began to dabble in these things and this father in passivity did not respond? He did not step forward. He did not do what a dad should do to protect his child. It's a good thing for us to think about, isn't it? As parents, we are tasked not only with keeping our children safe physically, but even more importantly, we are tasked with keeping them safe spiritually. A few years ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, our, our youngest 
was having a nightmare in the middle of the night. And, you know, it's that parent moment that I talked about, you know, that you're, you're laying there sound asleep when a blood-curdling scream pierces the air. And I hear my youngest girl crying out, no, no, don't, no. And every dad alarm, every man alarm in your head is just blaring. You go from dead asleep to fully alive. You know, even I was at the door to her room before I realized that I was out of bed. And I burst into the door, and here I am, shirtless, with my fists up, ready to go. When I caught a picture, you know, the, the mirror, I could see myself. I'm thinking, what good is this going to do? Are they going to be disabled by laughter? You know, are they going to be blinded by the whiteness? Maybe. That's in my favor. Not much else. But as a dad, as a man, those alarms go off. There are moments we know it is time to step forward and it is time to take a stand. It's time to protect those who are ours. You know what, guys? That isn't just physical danger. But we are called to respond to spiritual danger as well. We have got to understand that evil is real. It's real. It's not just make-believe. It's not a game. The enemy, the enemy, he wants you to believe that he is nothing more than a creation of Hollywood. He wants you to blow him off, to not concern yourself But evil is real, and it will devour our children if we let them play with it. Don't play around with evil. Don't, don't let evil in. Proverbs 8.13 says this. It tells us that to fear the Lord is to hate evil, to hate it. That's a strong word. And that's a strong word, and it should describe a, a strong response within us to anything that is evil. Don't let it in your house. Don't let it in. And not through your music, not through your movies, your TV, whatever it would be. Think about this. Think about this, parents. How would you feel about it? How pleased would you be if your children began to do the things that your songs sing about? How comfortable would you be with your children doing the things that your TV shows or your movies portray? Don't be the door through which evil comes into the lives of your kids and be willing to stand. Hey, you might be scrawny like me, but in that moment, take your stand. Stand between your family 
and the one who wants to destroy them. Honestly, we've got to do far more than that. Not just protect from the negative, but we need to be investing in our families in the positive side. We need to not only make sure that we are not polluting them or allowing them to be polluted with evil, but, but really the main thing that we need to be doing is we need to be feeding our families spiritually. Our job as parents in regard to our kids is to disciple them. It's to lead them to Jesus and grow them in Jesus. Hey, guys, the goal line, the finish line with kids is not to have them functional members of society. I mean, we all appreciate that if you do that. You know, making your kids an asset to this world, we appreciate that. But that's not your goal. That's not your finish line. Your finish line is that they would be lovers of Jesus, that they would love the Lord wholeheartedly. The way we do that is by growing them on God's word, giving them a diet of God's word, feeding them the word, teaching it to them, and teaching them how to get into it themselves. We do that by praying for our kids and praying with our kids and praying over our kids. We do it by teaching them, by showing them what worship is. We do it by pointing our kids to Jesus at every opportunity that we have. Listen to how the Lord describes it himself in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here the Lord says, these words that I am giving to you today are to be in your heart. Understand this, it starts with you. You cannot teach your kids to love Jesus if you don't love Jesus. You can't teach your kids to live their lives for the Lord unless you are living your life for the Lord. It starts with you. It starts with your heart because our kids will see far more than they will hear. You know what you sound like to your kids. You sound like that teacher on Charlie Brown. But they watch. They watch what you do. They see how you live. And so the Lord says, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart, but it doesn't end there. The Lord says, repeat them to your children. Repeat them. Tell them what the Lord has told you. Talk about them when you sit at your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. What the Lord is saying isn't that you should just be a nonstop recording, but rather in every situation of life, every place where your life is altered by what the Lord has spoken into you, every way that you are different because you are a disciple of Jesus, to talk about that with your kids. Dad, how come we're so weird? How come our family is not like the rest of the world? Well, genetics and Jesus right? And Jesus. So you, know, you can't blame everything on Jesus. And in all of this, remember, 
our words only has power, only have power if we are living out these things ourselves. It's got to be real in us in order for us to successfully pass it on to our kids. And you're never going to be perfect, okay? You're going to blow it. You are weak. And so the first thing to demonstrate to your kids is repentance. Oh, man, that's hard. I struggle with that. I think that's the toughest one is to admit I've blown it. To, to go to your kid that you've corrected 500,000 times and say, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? But we're imperfect. So we've got to do it. Well, back to Luke 9. Who, who was Jesus talking to there? Actually, I, I think it probably was his disciples I think he probably, he was rebuking his own disciples in the midst of this situation. I think he's looking past this boy's father. I think maybe he's looking over to where his disciples were and maybe they are still arguing with the scribes. That just makes sense to me because I assume that those disciples, well, they're probably a bit like me. I would imagine, and I am making some assumptions here, that when these guys found themselves inexplicably powerless in this situation, when they were unable to drive out this demon that was tormenting this poor boy, I imagine that they were embarrassed. I imagine when, when this guy came with his son, they were like, oh, step on up. We've done this before and we'll do it again. Hey, you, we know how this one works, so bring the boy over and, and the disciples gather around and they do whatever it was that they did and nothing happened. And I imagine that they were embarrassed by this. And in the midst of their embarrassment, they were defensive, especially when the scribes began to poke them especially when the scribes began to, to speak up and to point out their inadequacy and their impotency. And I imagine that defensiveness grew into anger and they all began to argue. I think that's why Jesus says what he says here, saying that they were an unbelieving and perverse generation. Some translations Say faithless and twisted. I like that. Faithless and twisted. Faithless and twisted, that describes someone who will choose to cover their own inadequacy instead of continuing to try to help someone in need. Here are the disciples. Trying to cover their weakness with the bluster of an argument against the scribes too busy arguing with each other to be of any help to this man and his child. It had to be a frustrating situation. I mean, casting out demons was something the disciples had done. In fact, you don't even have to go back a, a whole chapter in Luke. It was back in, at the beginning of chapter 9. Look there, verse 1 of chapter 9 of Luke. It's there that Jesus summons the 12, and what did he do? He gave them power and authority over all the demons. 
It wasn't even chapter eight. It was there at the beginning of chapter nine that Jesus had said, I'm going to give you the ability to do this. And not just, not just occasionally, not just with the weaker demons, but I'm going to give you authority over all demons. And they did it. They did it. Oh, Luke doesn't record, but Mark chapter six tells us that after Jesus had empowered them like this, that they had done this with great success and they had cast out many demons. But not that day. Not for that young man. That day they found themselves inexplicably powerless. Frustrated, confused. And so, unable to help, they begin to argue with the religious leaders who, by the way, were equally powerless to help this boy. And they get so engulfed in that conflict that they lose sight of everything else. It seems to me that they're not even aware when Jesus returns. I don't think anything moves us toward becoming argumentative faster than when we come face to face with our own weakness. When we come face to face with our own failure, our own inability to, to engage the, this world that is caught in darkness, we are prone to then put on a facade of being an expert, of being the knowledgeable one. We begin to try to convince everyone how smart and capable we are. We're trying to cover our weakness with a bluster. Sadly, I think that's an appropriate reminder for the church in general today. We are far too prone to giving ourselves to wasting our energy arguing with each, with each other over secondary or, or worse, it just simply preferential matters. Well, we have entirely put aside the task that we've been given. Because you and I, we aren't to be spending ourselves on intramural arguments. Rather, we're to be spending ourselves by binding together as the body of Christ and engaging this lost and, and perishing world with the gospel. That's what we're to be giving ourselves to. But, but the enemy does his work. And the enemy brings in confusion and insecurity and embarrassment. And we respond with hosti hostility and a, and a, and a self-centered perspective. And we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto ourselves. And nothing good comes from that. What's needed is what Jesus called for at the end of verse 41. Look back there. He told the boy's father, 
bring your son here. <laughs> That's the only thing that was needed on that day. The only thing that was going to work, the only thing that was going to rescue this boy was to bring him to Jesus. It sounds simple, but even that had its challenges, didn't it? Look at verse 42. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down, threw him into severe convulsions. And then two beautiful words, but Jesus. Oh, man, no matter what your situation is, when those two words enter in, it's a good change. No matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're facing, no matter what damage you've sustained, but Jesus. Because there's a change that's going to come. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Have you noticed, friends, that we have an enemy who never gives up? We have an enemy who, who will never give up. Now, understand this. The end result, God's victory and Satan's defeat, it has never, it never even for a moment been in question. There has never been a question who is going to win. God wins. God wins. There was never any doubt. And yet our enemy does not, and he will not surrender. And at times, his opposition against us will impact us in significant ways. I think even the delay for this father and this son had to have been torturous. See this for a moment through the eyes of the dad, maybe even of the son. They've been hearing about Jesus. They've been searching for Jesus. They always seem to be one village behind him. And then the day comes and they catch up. And there's the crowd. And oh, we recognize a couple of those knuckleheads. Those are his disciples. We found the right place. We've got the right crowd. And then they get there. and they, Oh, yeah, Jesus, nah, he's on a personal retreat right now. What? Okay, so can you do this? Oh, yeah, no problem. Great expectation. Probably a lot of sincere intention, and yet failure, delay, and the demon takes his son one more time. And even when Jesus is on the scene, and even when Jesus has said, bring your son, could you imagine what it was like for that father? In that moment, on the cusp of victory, he's right there. Jesus is there, and his son is here, and Jesus has called for him. And just as he begins to bring his boy to Jesus, it says the enemy attacked him severely, knocking him to the ground. Sometimes we live in that spot, don't we? We know we've come to the one who can do 
anything he chooses to do. We know that we've come to the one who's got the ability, the power, and yet a setback comes. A delay comes. And here's the thing about setbacks and delays. Because we are living in them, they feel permanent. They feel like the final answer, don't they? Because a setback is only a setback in retrospect. We only call it a setback when we've already gotten to the finish line. Yeah, we, we survived that. We made it through that. That was a setback. But what do we call it when we're in it? Devastation. Defeat. And yet, the end result, according to Scripture, is never in doubt. Look at what it says here. Look at what it says here. Because this is so key. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He healed the boy and he gave him back to his father. And friends, he will do the same for us. He does the same for us. Oh, like the boy, it doesn't always happen in the timeline where we think it will, right? It isn't always when we show up, we go, we're in the right place. We finally caught him and then well, personal retreat. What are you talking about? Not now. And yet, what does God's word tell us? It tells us that the victory is complete, that it is already in his hands. That is why Jesus tells his disciples that although you will have suffering in this world, yet he says, John 16, 33, be courageous for I have conquered the world. You know, Jesus doesn't have to say stuff like that when you're up at the mountaintop. When his glory is leaking out and you're wishing you brought your Ray-Bans, oh, when Jesus is glorified and he's all that you can see, you don't need to be reminded that even though you will have suffering this life, that he has conquered. It's when you're in the valley. Oh, Jesus is still with you, and it's the same Jesus. I promise you, it's the same Jesus. Oh, he looked very different on the mountaintop. But the Jesus in the valley has every bit of glory and power and sovereignty that the Jesus did who was on the mountaintop. We could just see it there. We have a hard time seeing it here. Our eventual victory is inevitable. And I know what that word means. It really is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to take place. Oh, the enemy may battle against us. He may knock us down time and again 
But Jesus has already won the victory, and he has promised that he will rescue us. He will. He will rebuke the enemy. He will judge the enemy finally. Revelation 20. There, at that, this scene at the end of all time, as the devil has, has led so many into a deceptive rebellion against God, it says that the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hey, friends, our enemy comes against us and he may knock us down, but the end of this story has already been written. The end of this story has already been written and it cannot be changed. He will be defeated. God will deal with him once and for all. Jesus rebuked that demon. He also healed that boy. Jesus healed that boy and there will come a day when he will heal us. And I don't mean that everything that happens in this life that, man, you just pray about it and magically it's going to change because here, here's reality. There are so many things, right, that we are convinced are good and right things, things that we, we just know they've got to be God's will. And we pray about them, we pray about them, and sometimes they don't happen. We're like that father who shows up and the disciples say, yeah, Jesus isn't here right now. And I don't know why this didn't work. It's always worked before. And maybe if we try it again, and then the disciples begin to argue. And that dad had to feel like it was a permanent defeat. And I think the thing that we need to remember in this life is we are never at the end of the story here because our story doesn't end here. Aren't you glad that it isn't just about this life? I mean, because we'd be a bunch of failures, for more or less. I mean, come on. I mean, really, is this the high bar? If it's only about this life, have we really done that much? Have we really accomplished that much? Are we that great of a success? but we're not living for this life. We're not living for this world, but we are living for what is yet to come. And what is yet to come is glorious. Again, Revelation, this time chapter 21, verse four, you'll find this familiar. The day will come when he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You got a lot of struggles, a lot of disappointments, a lot of hurts. Those tears just keep coming. He will wipe them all away. But even better than that, death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. He is going to heal us completely. You know, anyone who gets healed in this life, guess what? They die. Guess it wasn't that great of a healing. I mean, I mean I'd take it. It's good, but, but, but it's not permanent, is it? But on that day, when we see him face to face, 
when we are changed because we see him, on that day, it will be an eternal change. And best of all, best of all, and I'm not sure we can completely understand this, but best of all, Jesus gave that boy back to his dad. And there will come a day when Jesus will take you and he will take me, cleansed in his blood, robed in his righteousness, and he will present us to our Father. He will present us to God Almighty, who because of the blood of Jesus, because of the righteousness of Jesus with which we are robed, we will be found acceptable and more than acceptable. We will be loved. What a great picture is that. Colossians chapter one, Paul says it this way, verse 21, once you were alienated and hostile, he's talking about in our relationship with God in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. So we were twisted against God and we lived that out. But it says, but now he has reconciled you. Christ has reconciled you by his physical body, by his death in our place upon the cross. And he presents us holy, faultless, and blameless to the Father. I don't think that you or I in our present condition can really honestly comprehend the value the immensity of what it is that the Savior has done for us. And yet, as much as we are able, as much as we can understand it, and knowing these things, knowing not only what it is that Jesus has done for us, but what he will do for us, we should be like those people in verse 43 who were astonished at the greatness of God. Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, they saw Jesus in all his glory. They recognized his sovereignty. I think the thing for us to remember as we walk through this world of men, as we walk through the valleys, is that same Jesus on the mountaintop? He's the same one who stays with us in the valley. And we can look to him. We can turn to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that, that the Savior is glorious. And not just on the mountains, but in the valleys where we so often live our lives. And Father, I pray that you would remind us of that today. God, that as we go out from here, we would go out with a confidence, knowing that while yet in this world we may have trouble, that we have hitched ourselves to the one who has conquered all. And that, Lord, in your timing, in your way, you will set all things right. We long for that. We look for it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.